0: welcome to local wool a podcast for conscientious makers i'm anastasia williams and this is episode 9. Today, I'm really excited about the guests that we have that will kind of run through a bunch of different things that we don't normally talk about that kind of extend above and beyond fiber when we talk about farming, but I do want to give a little bit of a disclaimer today and just let you know that the discussion is going to go the direction of talking about sheep being a multi-purpose animals so we're talking about using them for meat and also for hides so if that's something that is a little bit more sensitive for you then this may be one to skip And then another thing that I did want to just kind of stick in there before you listen is there's one point where I talk about the Katahdin breed graduating from a heritage breed in 2015. I didn't mean a heritage breed, I meant an endangered breed. So that was just kind of like a little bit of a misspeak on my end. So now let's get on with the show. So today, joining me on. Oh, no, let me start that again. So joining me today, doing that again. So, <laughs> I, hate, I hate this. This is my least try favorite. I'm trying not to laugh. <laughs> I, you can. You absolutely can. So, okay. Joining me today is Bethany Cantwell, and she is going to talk to us a little bit about her... Flock that she has. It includes some meat sheep and some fiber sheep and all the different things that she does on her farm. So, Bethany, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Well, oh, thank you for having
0: me. I'm happy to be here. I know I just said a little bit about what you do, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of the farm that you run, the name of the farm, and kind of what you guys do?
1: Sure. Um, well, like you said, it's Bethany Cantwell and, uh, we live in Oxford, Ohio near like right outside of town, um, on, cause we have an interesting setup because we, we live on about one to two acres. It's like one and a half acres, something like that. We rent here right outside of town and we have a farm that we rent, which is about 30 minutes away from our house and it is on 30 acres and we rent the barn and the pastures, The people that own the property had raised um, sheep for 30 years, and they retired, so they needed somebody to rent this out. And we had just been looking on Craigslist at the time because we had just moved to Oxford in August, and then we saw this ad for um, this 30 acres in this barn in December. And I had just been looking for, you know, a few acres to have my sheep again because I have a background. I grew up on a farm. Come from a long line of farmers. And after living in the city for 10 years and moving out here, I really just wanted a couple sheep. Well, you can't raise just a couple sheep on 30 (laughs) acres. So, I mean, you can, but that's going to be, you know, not really utilizing it that much. So, um, I ended up getting, um, so we ended up getting the renting the farm out, and that was in December 2015. So, we've had the farm for a few years and we raise. Um we have around 100 sheep right now. It kind of fluctuates, um, but it's close to 100 right now. And most of those, I'd say, um, are the are Katahdans there. I've got over probably, I'd say 60, 60 of those are Katahdans and the rest are Icelandic and Jacob sheep. So those are my, my fiber sheep. And, um, we did, we have a donkey that is our guard donkey. His name's Magnus. (laughs) He's, he is, um, very attention seeking. He loves people to be out there and loves to, you know, take care of his sheep. The sheep follow him wherever he goes. So he's, if anything, he's a very good alarm for them. Um, we also have chickens and we used to raise meat chickens, but we only do the egg layers now. Um, because I'm focusing more on the fiber, uh, part of the sheep production. So I had to, when you add something to the plate, you got to take something off. So the meat chickens were what I decided I wasn't going to do. So, um, that's kind of where we're at now. And mostly, um, I don't do a lot. I only do one farmer's market and that's here in Oxford, And I sell a lot of privately to customers that come to the market that they buy either from me there at the market or they buy whole shares or half shares or whole lambs. Um, It's a share, but it's really a whole lamb. So they'll buy a whole lamb from me. Um, And those are, that's predominantly the two. It's just the market that I do. I don't, I sell privately and through there, I didn't want to go to a bunch of different markets or anything like that. So.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, that's really neat. It sounds like you've got a lot going on, really. Uh, yeah, dude. <laughs> so, okay, so I know you said they grew up on a farm. So kind of what, what started your interest in all of this and kind of what brought you down the path that you're on now?
1: Well, I, my husband and I met in law school. And I had worked, when we moved out here um, to Oxford, it was an hour drive for me. And I remember just feeling like once we got the farm, like, uh, I, I just really wanted to get back to doing that again. I missed being out raising sheep. I missed, I missed, I had chickens when I lived in the city, when I had my own house. I had chickens and I had a big backyard on a third of an acre. So it kind of started there, um, that even though I lived in the city and experienced that, I really just wanted to go back to raising, because we had sheep, we had we raised Suffolk, and I was a 4-H kid through and through, I was an FFA, so I did all of that stuff growing up but when we moved out here it just reminded me of how much i really wanted to do that again and then when we found the farm it just seemed like well i always say i don't know if it found me or if i found it because it just landed perfectly in our laps for what we you know it was bigger than what we had expected but it was in a great great way so um so then i thought you know i just don't i was feeling you know partly anxious and partly unsettled like i just don't want to be in an office all day, every day. Like, I just did. feel like I didn't want to do that anymore. And, you know, I, and so when we started farming or I started doing this more full time, um, it just became one of those things. Like I, I, this is where I want to be and this is what I want to be doing. And I want to spend my time outside and, and I really, really enjoy that. And it's very therapeutic doing it. Um, it's a lot of stress too. <laughs> so it's just like sure. double-edged sword, but it's, it's where, you know, there's a saying that some people say that a a bad day on the farm is still better than a good day at the office. Now I say that in a sense, but I also work from home doing legal research. So that really came about in a wonderful way that allowed me to A, stay at home and work up to 29 hours a week. And I write my own schedule to where I can work that around the farm so like during lambing season I you know make sure that my hours are set during certain times or I you know I I write my schedule two weeks out so I can see how the weather's going to be of course it always changes but I'm able to have the luxury of doing that and it's worked out beautifully um, to work from home and still you know use my legal background, which I love to do that and my, do my legal research and be able to still farm. So I'm very, very blessed and fortunate for that because not a lot of people get those opportunities. I mean, I know plenty of farmers that are working, you know, five to one and then spending until eight or nine o'clock at night out, you know, in their fields every night and it's exhausting, you know, so, and they have to drive to their jobs. <laughs> I have to yeah. drive to the farm, but I get to work from home. So that makes it very, very I'm very fortunate that way. Sure.
0: So, I just kind of like a a little question that kind of go into that. So, since you are a little bit of a distance and you do have lambing season, do you have like do you have like nanny cams or anything out there?
1: You know, I have tried. My parents have tried. We have tried to figure out a way to do that um, to be able to put nanny cams out there. But because there is no Wi-Fi out at the barn. Um, we've tried different setups and if any listeners have any information that they think would be helpful for that, there's no Wi-Fi out at the farm. Um but what I've done is my parents let me use their pop-up camper and it is in the upper level of the barn. Um, our farm is Aurora blue farm is the name of the farm. And, um, if you follow us on Instagram, you'll see that a lot of times I spent in my lambing camper or my sheeper or whatever you want to call it. Um, (laughs) because you know, I, I need a place to stay warm, especially during winter lambing. So I spend a lot of time in that camper and I take off time for work during that, and I plan that using, as much as I can plan it, I use marking harnesses on my rams that will tell me, um, I'm not sure if you're, are you familiar with marking harnesses?
0: No, I'm not.
1: <laughs> I, they're kind of like... Um, I don't know how to put it politely, but anyway, it's, it's a harness that goes on the front of a ram, and it has a crayon on it, and when he mounts the sheep, it leaves a mark on their back, and so then you can just count out five months, and that's when the lamb sheep should, if she took, if she got pregnant, she'll be due in five months. oh okay so yeah so they have and so this year I decided I wanted to to make it easier for breeding um, and because you know I wanted to limit how many sheep because two years ago the winter was really really bad I mean the water froze out at the barn at the farm and I was hauling water from Oxford out to the farm because I had 55 pregnant ewes and the water was like there was no water because the pipes froze under the ground and so it was a very, very exhausting and trying time. So I said, I'm not going to have all of them due in the winter. I'm going to have maybe 20 of them due in the in winter, and then the rest will be due in the spring, which is what I did this year. So because I had a really good system this year set up with using those marking harnesses, I knew who was going to be due when, uh, within at least a window of opportunity. So that really helped to prepare like I knew who was going to be having babies soon
0: versus just
1: guessing with 55, 60 use, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. So that helps. So that's been my substitute until I can get nanny cams out there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'd almost wonder if you need like a data plan or something to Mm, run them that way, but I don't know. I don't know. So, um, now, what about like the three breeds that you mentioned? So you have the Katahdens, you have uh, the Jacob, and the Icelandic. So how mm-hmm. did
1: you land on those three breeds? Well, we were really looking for. I'm trying to think of even how that happened with the Jacob, and that we really wanted um, something just, uh, I really a, just a beautiful sheep, and we wanted something, an animal that was going to do very well. Um, that were hardy and heritage breeds because I, and Icelandics aren't a heritage breed, but they come from a long line of her, you know, hardy stock from Iceland. So I, I was looking for the sheep that I knew would um, be a heritage breed, which is Jacobs R, because I raised a lot of heritage breed chickens. So that's what put me onto the Jacobs. I found that they have beautiful coloring and patterns Mm -hmm. um they're very good they're kind of flighty some of them are at least um, in my flock I only have one that's somewhat friendly the rest of them are pretty just not like they'll see you from a distance but they really have no interest in like cuddling you or seeing what you're doing unless you have food they really are not super (laughs) super super warm but they are great um, parasite resistant. They have great feet. Um, their, their mothering instinct is phenomenal and they have wonderful wool. So that's what I was looking for heritage breeds. And then, you know, my husband said, Oh, you know, I think it was him actually that said that he thought the Jacob sheep looked really neat because they have four horns and they Mm. just look majestic. And then we looked at Icelandics and I said, I really want to add Icelandics. So, I knew that wanted to be a smaller portion of our of our fiber flock, but the rest of them, I thought, I knew that I was going to be doing the majority of the work myself. My husband works full-time, and since we don't live on side of the farm, that's a lot to try to work 40 hours a week and then drive all the way out there, do all this work. So... I did not want to have to shear 100 sheep a year myself. And it's really hard to find, yeah, so I'm going to work smarter, not harder. Because I knew that it was really hard to get people to even, um, to come out to your farm to shear. Yeah. Like, it's not like, it's it's like people just, it's hard to find people to do that. So, um, that's why I came across the Katahdins. And my landlord that, that we rent the farm from, he raised a lot of Katahdins. And so he raised Dorsets, Katahdins, and I think Dorper crosses for a while. And those are the ones with the blackheads. Um, so he was raising them for the, the parasite resistant. Um, they are very good mothers. And they seem to do well out here on his pastures. So I mean, he raised sheep for 30 years on his pasture. He knows it better than anybody. So if he thought that that breed did well on his land, that's why I kind of stuck with him. I I knew I needed a hair sheep. And now it's pretty easy. Now, if you find most of the sheep, if you're looking, a lot of people are raising hair sheep over wool breeds because of that, especially for meat. Sure.
0: Yeah. And I think, too, you know, based on the research that I've done, so I looked up through the Livestock Conservancy and apparently they were considered a heritage breed for a little while but then they graduated Mm. uh, in 2013 so because of the decline in the interest in wool then there was the increase of interest in the meat part of it so I think that's why which is kind of funny because I think that things are starting to kind of maybe go back the other way a little. Well, I, I think don't know so but, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but I mean that's really interesting so um now you mentioned some of the stuff about them being parasite resistant and all that stuff so um what are some other characteristics that are unique to katans that you've noticed
1: um they they are very they have a very strong mothering instinct where um I mean I've had some like flat out Knock me down when I'm in a lambing pen with them, because they've just given birth and they don't want you anywhere near them. Um, there's there's a very strong mothering instinct with that, and um, and they they seem to do very well on the pastures that we have. And like I said, that's not going to be necessarily for every farmer. But we we have thirty acres separated into different pastures, and there's about six six or seven different pastures. 10 of those acres are orchard grass, and they do very well on that. Um, I love that their pattern and coloring is always different. Like, they can come in a variety of colors. They can come in white, brown, spotted, tan, beige, kind of more of a ginger color. They do have so many different color patterns, but they get big, but they're not, like, I'm 5'2", and so, I mean, Suffolk sheep growing up, and my sister has Suffolk. I mean, they're like small horses. Like, they're, I mean, they're like Huge compared to Katahdin's. Like they're still sturdy and stout, but they are just not, they're not something. Now, my ram is huge. Barry, our, our Katahdin ram, he has no idea how massive he is. Because um, <laughs> I can grab him and put a halter on him and then put that harness, marking harness on him, and he doesn't fight me that much. Um, the rams can get really big, but the use are still manageable for me. And that was very, very important because I needed it to be. And I did not need, I did not want to have. Hoof problems. I did not want that to be because that's backbreaking work. So I mean, when you're raising, you know, they they John and Leah, the, our landlords had um, they lambed out over a hundred ewes on their farm. So that's why I stuck with. I tried to keep the numbers between fifty to seventy-five ewes because I didn't want to have to buy hay. I wanted us to be able to all, like, full circle. We raise the hay. It's baled on our farm. It should be baled in the next week or two. And then, you know, everything is full circle there. I don't want to have to buy any hay if I have if I don't have to. I want sure. the land to sustain what exactly numbers that we can. And if it becomes, the, you know, I need to reduce the flock because of that, then I, I will. But I, that's why I stick with that number because of what they have their experience in the past 30 to 40 years.
0: Mm, okay. Yeah, that
1: that makes total sense. So
0: can we talk a little bit about like hair sheep versus wool sheep and what mm-hmm. exactly that means?
1: Yeah. Um, you'll see some of the older heritage breed sheep, like my Jacobs and even Shetlands do this. And, um, and even my Icelandic Grand Peter does this, where they will naturally... At some point, and I think other breeds do You probably know probably know more about this than I do. Their wool will break as it kind of gets as as it gets. Not wool break as in that it's bad, but towards that, she- when it starts to shed. Mm. Um, it'll naturally kind of shed itself, but it doesn't shed like Katahdens do. Katahdens and other like Saint Croix, um, the black belly sheep. I'm trying to think of some other ones off the top of my head. They have real thick, like, hair like a dog. And so, right, and but it'll get kind of, it's like a mixture between wool and hair, and it's not soft at all when it's, when they're older. But it, it starts to shed and comes off in large clumps. Like, the sheep are out now, and it's terrifying because you'll go out to the field and you'll see a wool everywhere and you think oh no coyote got it no sheep was just scratching on a tree getting that (laughs) wool off and so it sheds off like that is and it looks like right now they kind of look like a hot mess because they're in that stage where they're scratching and it's coming out that winter coat is but it's not spinnable it's not something that you would um necessarily save uh, save for anything but it does Um, make it easier if you're not raising them for the fiber just meat then you don't have to go through that extra work to shear them when you know it can come out on its own.
0: Sure so you don't have to do any sort of, like, aiding and abetting in helping that coat come off whatsoever. Nope. There
1: may be... I have one you that her name's Harriet, and she got that name because she had, like, a toupee on her back. But for whatever reason, that that chunk of wool would not come off, and so the kids said she had a hairy back. So I ended up shearing her back. So sometimes you may have, like, a clump of wool that just, for whatever reason, is tenacious and doesn't want to come off, and, and you may have to touch it up. But I think I've touched up three like, and it's usually the same three, Harriet's one of them, and then two, I have two Dorper Katahdin crosses, um, a mother and a daughter, that sometimes they, their wool come out in a patch or two, and I may have to fix it for them, um, but they're very hands-off when it comes to that.
0: Well, I suppose that's kind of nice. <laughs>
1: it is. <laughs> It'd be very overwhelming if I had to share all of them. <laughs>
0: yeah, I can imagine. So, what kinds of different techniques do you guys employ you know on that 30 acres as far as kind of like farming
1: practices go well biggest thing that we try to because parasites are a huge problem and especially if you go like just for goats and sheep that's and we have used oh when I say we just as an industry there has been a lot of overuse with um Warmers, so we're finding that a lot of warmers are parasite like resistant to a lot of those warmers. So the best way to um, one is genetics. Like some sheep are genetically more susceptible. Like my ram, for example, um, he my Icelandic Ram Peter, wonderful, gorgeous wool. He's thick. He is pretty good tempered, unless he's hangry. Um, but he's great in that sense. But he always, in July, I always have to watch him in June and July because he he does seem to get hit with worms more than any other any of the other, like, Jacob sheep. Um, so I just keep an eye on him for that. But that's why I, I we employ a lot of... Um, And most people would call him and get rid of him and say they don't want that genetics. But see, I crossed him with my Jacob sheep because I was hoping that they would come out with his gorgeous wool, but with the Jacob genetics as far as parasite resistant, because that's the only thing that Peter's lacking in is his parasite resistance. Um, And it's not like a major struggle, but what, what I do to make this try to reduce the impact of having to use any warmers is to rotationally graze as much as possible. And now my dad had been reading this article and I've I've read this too that um once I think it's so many inches you don't let the grass get so many inches low. I think it might be 2 inches, 5 inches, I can't remember the exact number. Um but I rotate them so often that it doesn't happen anyway, but um, that the parasite, the larva cannot climb any higher on a blade of grass. So that's why I try to rotate them. Um, one of our fields is larger than another. So I make, sh- they can stay on it a little bit longer than the other pastures, but I try to let them rest. And that's one of the biggest things that, um, that, that, the kind of practices that we use on the farm. Um, and we also as far as like this year i have not had to use um any antibiotics even on the use. um if i do use any antibiotics it's because you know i've already called the vet and they've had to come out and there's a reason for it um but the if a lamb or, or anything has ever used antibiotics they're not um produced for meat um i don't um i don't uh dock any of the sheep tails um I, because the sheep, Katahdin sheep too, you also notice that they are what they call it a fat tail sheep because they don't are not susceptible to fly strike. Um, so that's one thing that I just don't do and the majority of the sheep, now this year I may say may be different, but I do not castrate them either. So I try to stay as hands off as possible. One, it's, I feel like, Unless there's a risk of breeding, which most of the time they are um, gone from the farm before they become sexually mature, the rams do. So I don't have that issue of breeding problems like, you know, you're worried about them getting bred. So I try to stay pretty hands off and I don't wean either. (laughs) I'm listening to this thing, all the things I don't do. So I rotationally graze. I don't wean them because I feel like it's super, super stressful on the ewes and the lambs to do that. And you have to separate them and keep them in the barn. And then I don't want to do that. So, um, the sheep are offered, especially if they are twins, there's a separate pen that they are able to get non-GMO locally sourced grain if they need it. Um, but I have hardly any of them will even get anywhere near it. It's usually, like I said, the twins, um, where they may need something like that extra, um, sustenance because mom's trying to keep up with her milk production. But, um, I don't, and like I said, I haven't, I can't even tell you the last time I even used antibiotics. It might have been last winter, and it probably was on a ewe, not on a lamb. So we don't dock tails, we don't don't wean, we just let those things happen naturally as much as possible, because that's less, you know, they didn't, they don't need me to do everything like that for them. It's less stress for them, I think, so. Yeah, which kind of allows
0: them to kind of maintain some of those uh, traits that a lot of them have had in the past, like certain breeds, especially I would mm-hmm. think like, especially with heritage breeds, you know, cause most of them are kind of, well, at some point it seems like a lot of them have been kind of feral. So, <laughs> but that yeah. makes
1: them so parasite resistant and everything. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, it does. And, and, you know, we have, um, you know, there's issues when you do castrate lambs, like you can get urinary calculi, which is a problem. Um, if with some certain castrated lambs, I worry about tetanus, there's infections. I mean, I, and I grew up doing completely different things. I mean, I, we, we castrated all of our lambs, we castrate and we docked all their tails, but that's what I'm saying. Like I do things differently than I was raised because I have a different, um, different way I went to farm I'm not saying that what I did before is wrong just is different because that's sure. you know I mean it was a different setup different reasons I'm not ma- you know raising them for 4-H and show products and so that's not what they're for so you mm-hmm. know different practices different farms so
0: yeah yeah absolutely um now and you two, you have is it do you have two kids that are school age
1: I have two step kids. Um, one is Bella. She is going to be. She's 13, and Sam just turned 12. Mm-hmm.
0: Perfect. So 12, so, and 13. So do they like
1: being involved with the sheep? They do, and it's interesting because they love. They love being. It, it, it's hard because to, to a child driving 30 minutes is might as well be like three hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, so I think that, that does take away from it. So there, it would be, cause there was two years ago, there was a summer where I was working, working farming full time and they were with me every day. And so they got to plant in the garden. Sam is a little bit more interested in the garden and Bella's more interested in the lambs, but she actually is now, um, She did a a volunteer project for school um, and needed to to do a volunteer project. And so um, I said, well, of course, it was, like, due within the next week. So I said, why don't you just come to the market with me and you can help the manager? Go help Larry. He'll put you to work. I said, you can learn about our SNAP benefits. You know, um, we also take all this food that's left over from the market and it's given to the food pantry if it's not sold. I said, Mm -hmm. you'll learn some good things. Well, she did so well that the market manager wants her every Saturday. So now she's got a little summer job working at the market and, and doing all of that things now. So she does really enjoy the sheep and she enjoys that because she says the market's so nice. Everybody's so nice. Oh. I said, I know I said, everybody at the market is really, really nice.
0: Oh, that's really cool.
1: Yeah. So Sam gets a little bit more into the gardening and plants. Like he's got cilantro growing in his room. He loves the babies. He's pretty, he loves baby lambs. Whenever we have bottle babies that are here, which we had two. Up until today actually. I took him back out to the farm. Um, but he yeah, they're both very, very good with them. But Bella has more of an interest in the lambs and the babies and Sam is a little bit more into the garden because he'll ask what this is, or he wants to plant watermelon or plant broccoli. So he's got more of a plant interest than Bella does.
0: Oh, well that's really cool though. I mean it's it's nice to, that they have their own zones where they want to be involved at least. Mm-hmm. Rather than not not wanting to. And I think it's like it's a great thing for kids to learn how to do um you know just having all those experience. you know I grew up on a farm and while I'm not a farm person and for some reason as an adult I've grown into a situation where like every bug likes to eat me alive where I don't think that ever happened to me when I was little so I hate being outside now
1: but... yeah it's like my husband it's like a mosquitoes like flock to him but it's like they don't bother me at all
0: yeah it's like there's something about that that kind of makes being outside not so enjoyable, but I still remember all of those parts, you know, when I go visit friends farms, you know, sometimes it's just like, Oh, it's just a smell or it's mm-hmm. a sound or something that really kind of takes you back to that. So I think it's, it's a, it's a neat experience for kids to have at, you know, at, in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, you and I actually talked before we started doing the recording part of it while well, we talked quite for a while about <laughs> the, the farmer's market aspect of it. So, um, you know, what, you know, what does that look like for you when you're selling things like lamb? Like what are some of the unique challenges in selling at a farmer's market and
1: kind of some of the stuff that that
0: you do to combat those challenges?
1: Well, it's pretty... Well known, I think. Understood. People just don't. Americans just don't eat a lot of lamb. I mean, I think they eat less. Than, I think statistically, they eat less than one pound a year or something. I mean, it's compared to beef or pork. Um, and so the challenge when I when we first started doing this is that I said, I think. I think this is going to be okay. Like, let's sell it at the market. We have a huge diversity here at Oxford because of the university. So, you have a lot of people that go to Europe or travel worldwide. And so, that when you go over to other overseas, you know, I had someone say that they just spent uh, two weeks in New Zealand and all they ate was lamb. So, you do have a lot of people that do have interest. So, the challenge, though, is for the people that have said, I had lamb and it was awful. And I said, well, you probably had mutton or you had something. I said, because I've had bad experiences with lamb. So I, I understand why that would turn people off. So some of the things that I've done to try to overcome that is, one, packaging. I make sure that the packaging is small enough, and I'm talking like like not even a pound. Like a lot of our pork, our pork chops, a lot of our chops are in smaller packages. And our leg steaks, like all cut leg center steaks, is um, maybe even a half a pound, and there's two in there, because it gives people the opportunity to one not have sticker shock when they see the price because lamb does you know is a higher price than it is when you buy pork or beef um and so but they see it that's a less of a commitment in order to try it because they want to try it again but they don't want to you know what are you going to do with a pound of lamb if you don't if you end up hating it now a half a pound doesn't seem so bad or a third of a pound yeah i, I might try it for that you know so So that's one thing is that having the packaging where it's not a huge commitment to the customer if they decide that they want to go out there. It also works because sometimes you have a family that one person loves it and the other person absolutely will never eat it no matter how many times you try to get them to try it. So that other person doesn't want to have pounds and pounds of lamb. So it's worked out um, to have the packaging and, and smaller packages like that and I've had I've not had anybody that people that try it and they want to love it and come back. Like if they're, you know, wary about it. Um, the other thing is some people are like, I don't know how to cook it. So because everybody knows how to, you know, who knows what to do with beef. They know what to do with pork. They know what to do with chicken, but they really don't know what to do with lamb. Um, so. I get um, so the big, huge resource for people that raise uh, or that raise meat sheep uh, is to look at the American Lamb Association. Um, There is a ton of um, material that can be great to um, to have at your booth, and so I have lots and lots and lots of recipes um, they're free books to me. So the customers take them for free. So educating them on how to cook, like, um, people forget that lamb is a red meat, so you can cook it medium rare. So people don't realize that because our grass fed lamb or pasture raised lamb is not very fatty. So, um, it gets dried out really, really quickly. So that's, so that's a couple of the things is that trying to educate people that, um, giving them these tools in order to try new recipes, uh, with the recipe books and the packaging, making it so, um, it's easier for the customer to want to try it. And the one thing that I haven't done in the past, but I plan to do that this year, if I have the opportunity to is offer like uh, samples and like a crock pot. Mm. So that way people can try it. And usually that, I mean, there's a lot of, um, different recipes that you can can do for that but I just the the interest in lamb this year has been it's increased every year and maybe it's because I'm one of the only there's only one other person at the market that sells lamb and they just started last year and usually they have lamb in the fall which is when I'm kind of winding down because I have a lot of people that have already purchased whole shares in the fall so it kind of you know evens out so at least somebody mm. always has lamb at the market sure um but those have been, the, the, I think, the challenges is to educate people as to how to cook it and why they should try it or, you know, making, like I said, the smaller packages have been have been really a hit with them. And giving yeah. them things that they can throw on the grill, you know, besides just having ground lamb or lamb chops, like trying to be creative with it has worked really well.
0: Yeah, that's actually really clever. Um, it makes me want to try a little bit more, too, because I know that we've, we have somebody who does sell like, uh, shanks in the winter. Mm-hmm. And then we'll get from them. But then, you know, we can only have it so many times before for some reason for my husband and I like there's something about like the smell and the taste that we have to take a break for a little
1: bit. But it then can once... be
0: that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but once we've had that separation, then we're like
1: all ready to go by the next time we see it again. So and it's interesting to me because, um, I have people, one particularly that they have celiac disease and so they can't eat pork, they can't eat certain things. Um, but, or they, they always get lamb from us cause they say it doesn't upset their stomach. And somebody else is telling me like last year that they, um, can't eat red meat, but for whatever reason, lamb doesn't bother them. And they asked me why I thought that was, I said, you know, I have no idea i said but i'm gonna guess that maybe because most people don't ever eat lamb you know you haven't been accustomed to it maybe that might be why it is i don't know you know that kind of just something you just don't have all the time but yeah trying to get people to try it and once they do they They love it. I also, one other thing that I've added to the mix last year was herbs and jams that actually pair well, like mint jelly is a very popular item that pairs well with lamb. So I make my own mint jellies and I do my own lamb rubs, which are made from rosemary, oregano, and thyme to provide with them. So to try to do a little kit. So it's like, here's your jelly, here's your recipe book, and here you go.
0: You are so clever. (laughs) That is
1: so smart. Trying, (laughs) trying to be.
0: (laughs) That's a really, really fabulous thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's really cool. I'm really, now I'm going to go try some more. I'm going to try some more lamb. Um, But uh, what was the other thing I wanted to ask? Oh, so, so you, okay. So you sell the meat at the market, you sell the, now you're going to try it. You're going to do like the herbs and the jellies.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, and so do you ever do any of the
1: fiber or anything there, or do you do that separately? Yeah. So the, I have been doing, I, I am not, but I want to be, um, a knitter, crocheter, things like that. So the crocheting I could do a little bit of. So I had some of the Icelandic wool spun into yarn a couple years ago, and I have decided that there's some of the wool that isn't really good for spinning, but it makes wonderful dryer balls. And I offer them on our website. I promote it usually through my Facebook page, um, but I always end up selling so selling it before I even have an abundance of it to bring to market. Um, but I have brought some dryer balls in the past to market, but it's never like I have because that's time-consuming to make. You know, okay. and then you only have, you know, you've got your wool shearing in the spring and you have your shearing in the fall. So um, I have sold those at the market. Um, my goal this year to, is to offer more fiber products at the table to go to have it full circle where we've got the wool. Um, One of the other things that I've just started doing um, is sheepskins. And I did this because I had a Jacob lamb that unexpectedly died like two years ago. And it was a gorgeous ram lamb. He was only like maybe four months old. And um, I just could not bear just to let him Die in vain, so I took it, I got his sheepskin, I skinned him out, and I had it sent off to um, a tannery, and it came back, and it was beautiful, absolutely gorgeous, but it smelled chemically, if that's even a word, it smelled chemical, like (laughs) E, so I just thought, I really want to learn how to do this, and I started following some really amazing, lovely people on Instagram um, that do tanning on sheepskins and so I thought I'm going to just see if this is something that I can do I wasn't really ready to brain tan them which is the native like the old way of doing that a lot of other cultures and 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 that use brains to tan sheepskins and because one sheep brain will tan one sheepskin and one hog brain would do one hog so it's there's enough of that in one animal to do the whole skin which I think is interesting um but I just so I started wanted to try doing those but I I didn't have any of ours that were ready to do that. So I talked to my butcher and there's another farmer that raises, um, I believe they're fin sheep and you may know more about this than I do, but their wool is crimpy and long. Um, it's really, really, really gorgeous, but they just throw this, they just throw the skins away. He, they don't, he doesn't want to do anything with them. So I asked if I could start buying them so I could practice tanning sheepskins and turns out I love doing it, it is not very uh pleasant work but it is uh, it's so rewarding after it's said and done um so I've got into that which I hope to offer more sheepskins through the summer and fall um I actually pick up six more tomorrow um when I go up to the butcher tomorrow I pick them up or the abattoir I pick them up there but um I I in trying to keep fiber and more of a forefront because I'm I'm really interested in the the fiber breed. I did cross um, my Icelandic ram with some Katahdin with most of my Katahdin use mm. because if you cross a hair sheep, you know you're you're thinking like, well, will they end up uh, hair or will they end up wool or will it be a mix or will it even be worth anything? Well, that's what I was hoping to get to where I'd have more fiber Um, instead of buying a bunch more Icelandic sheep. I wanted to see how that worked. So I bred my Icelandic ram to some of the Katahns and there are some really wavy wooled babies that are running around the field right now with little horns. So I think that their wool is going to, and they're white too. So I guess because of white, when you breed, white is kind of like a dominant color, I guess. Okay. And so somebody else told me this one time, a fiber artist said that white is dominant. So it's kind of like white out. So if depending on what the genetics are, so even though he's all black and I breed them with the, with the white used, the babies are all coming out white, white curly wooled. So, um, so I'm interested to see, cause I want to add more fiber and dryer balls and things to the, to the market, um, to show people like, you know, there's so much that, you know, out of sheep, they have wool, they have meat, they have milk, they have all kinds of things that you can get from them. So full circle sheep production kind of is what I've been trying to focus on this year. So we will hopefully have more um, fiber products at the market this summer and fall.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, that is, that is really cool. I like that. I like this full circle thing, like just basically making use of everything and no waste in Mm -hmm. any capacity. So um, self-sufficient really it's kind of resourceful
1: mm-hmm. um, and what what customers have found there was a I had brought one of the sheepskins to the market and one of my regular customers had said I he bought a whole share lamb for me and he said if you can if any of them have Like if you can, because, you know, some of the sheepskins, especially at the time of the year, if their wool is shedding, it's not going to be very good for first a sheepskin, but you could use it in for leather, but it wouldn't necessarily be a good sheepskin as per se, like wool on, does that make sense? Wool on, hair on? Um, So, but he said, if the one that I get from you in July or October Um, it has nice wool, will you tan the sheepskin? So now these customers not only want the meat from the lamb, they want the sheepskin tanned as well. So they're getting Mm -hmm. all of it as well.
0: Yeah, that's, well, and that, I mean... That makes selling easier for you, too. It so. does. But, and, you know,
1: I just didn't think about that. Like, I don't know of very, you know, very many people. I would love to reach, if them reach out to me, like, how that works for them. Like, if they're going full circle like that, where they have customers that buy the lamb share, and then they end up, buy, they tan the sheepskin for them, too. I mean, I'm sure that happens. Maybe I just haven't, you know. But I thought it was an interesting that he wanted that. Um, so.
0: Okay, so I want to ask then, so since, since you said that you weren't quite sure if you were ready to tan with brains do you do tan with brains now
1: I have done one and the and it's it's interesting because it's I've been using um well, one, I really hate dealing with math and mixing and fractions and all that kind of stuff. So there's a million different ways to tan with stuff. So what I had been using is like that Trapper's Tanning Solution that you can get online at Cabela's or anything. It's And it's it's got a very pleasant smell if you don't mind the smell of like whiskey or oak. Because that's what it smells like to me is like a woodsy smell. Mm. So that's why I thought it was okay. Now, I want it to be as chemical-free as possible. So I did... I wanted to try brain tanning, but I thought I bought these bottles. I'm going to use these first because that way I knew that if I messed something up, it wasn't because I messed up the brains. It was because I was, you know, (laughs) some other reason. So I did, I have it and I tried it on a sheepskin that I knew I wouldn't sell because the farmer that I got it from, he had used blue marking paint. So it stained it. So I thought, but. I'm not going to let it go to waste. I'm going to try my brain tanning with it, you know? And then if I want to, I can use natural dyes. I've been experimenting with natural dyes on how to dye that would cover up that blue paint. Um, So, yeah, my stepdaughter and I were outside. We had it laying over uh the fire and was smoking it and i it's it's very interesting it has a very different feel than the other sheepskins that i have done um but i have done it and oddly enough brains did not gross me out i don't know i thought it would when i originally started i was like there's no way i'm gonna use brains like this is gonna be you know like just too creepy for me but then it's, i got pork brains from the butcher and thawed it out and used about a quarter of it and so I just didn't have him hanging outside because I started to notice that flies were kind of paying a little bit too much attention to it,
0: so I had oh. to bring it
1: in on the frame inside to let it um, to dry. So if somebody, I mean, you need to do a little bit more research on that. So I have done brain tanning and I have smoked it over the fire.
0: Interesting. Okay, but sorry, I just wanted to to know about that. Yeah.
1: Um, so well, I mean, like
0: we've covered like a whole lot of stuff, but what? I mean, is there anything? I, well, we've talked about some of the stuff you want to do in the future, but anything kind of coming up that we haven't talked about already?
1: Well, that's, I mean, trying to experiment with the the crossbreeding with the Icelandic and the Jacobs because that was a big thing too. Is that I really wanted the Jacobs to try to make up for what? And like I said, his his genetics as far as parasite resistant goes. It's not bad. It's just I always watch him because I get nervous about it. And there's been a couple times where I could tell he was struggling a little bit more than any any the other sheep. So I'm hoping that the crossbreeding will, you know, produce lovely wool even among the hair sheep breeds. But some people may say that's a waste. Why would you breed an Icelandic to a Katahd? And It's like, well, I'm experimenting. We'll see how it happens.
0: Yeah, and I actually had read something about um, that it's not necessarily considered, like, a negative or uncommon to try to work in some of that wool kind of genetic into a hair sheep because like you can get really interesting fleeces as a result of that, (laughs) just depending on it. I'm not entirely sure where I read that, but I think I did read something. I don't know. It's just, it's really interesting to me. Um, But anyway, uh, so if, somebody wants to get in contact with you or find some of the stuff that you sell or kind of find you online, where would they
1: look? Instagram is really where, I mean, I have a Facebook page, but it's more businessy. It's, it's like, I I don't, I put like when we're going to be at the market, what we have for sale and things like that. But I get more personal and very transparent in the Instagram and you can find us at Aurora blue um, farm, Ohio believe that's what I have it on there now um and it's you know I'm under it's Bethany Cantwell but it's Aurora Blue Farm Ohio um we have a website which is AuroraBlueFarm.net um that you can go on to see what we offer I still have to update some pictures on there um but of our products but Instagram is usually the best way to reach out to me and if you've If you want to, if you've listened to anything I've said and they've got something they want to give me some feedback on or tips and tricks, I would love to hear back from people.
0: Awesome. Okay. Well, Bethany, thank you so much for coming on and sharing
1: all this with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I very much enjoyed it.
0: As always, you can find everything that we talked about on today's episode, including links to Bethany's farm and her Instagram on the show notes, which are at com slash podcast, and we'll see you next time.